Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, what a great afternoon for listening to the Water Zone Show. Welcome, everybody. I'm Rob Starr, along with Mr. Chris Davies, and we are the host of the show. And we hope everybody's having a great afternoon. Mr. Davey out in California, how are you doing today? Good, man. Looking forward to the uh, long weekend coming up, the Independence Day weekend. It's going to be four days. So wow. uh, who's complaining? They're giving you Monday off? They give us Monday off. So uh, actually, I think it was a, a elected holiday for, for most people. So yeah, good, huh? Good. So how's the weather out in California? Uh, finally, a uh, finally, you know, sounds smells, tastes, and feels like a summer day. <laughs> ah, it's out this way in the Phoenix area at 100 degrees Fahrenheit and mostly sunny, and it's a beautiful day. And uh, i got to ask the next Chris on how she doing. The wonderful Maven's Notebook owner, the, the writer, the head honcho, the CEO, <laughs> the chairman of the board, Miss Chris Austin, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Good. Did I leave any titles off? Uh, no, I think you, yeah, that one, yeah, yeah. Well, oh, you <laughs> forgot, you know, the, the internet goddess of California well, water, but, you I'll, know. I'll, I'll add that to the list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's hot up here. It's our, it's the hottest days of the year that we're having. It, it's hit 101, and it's going to be very hot in the North State. So, um, hot all over. This, You know, here comes the heat wave, but... Uh, we have nothing to complain about compared to the folks on the East Coast. So well, you know, right. if you're out there dealing with that, uh, dealing with that bad air, well, you know, we we're, we understand that. So uh, it's, it's supposed yeah. to rain. It's supposed to have storms, which hopefully will push that away. We hope. Yeah. Yeah. So let's you know. So. Hopefully, but up here it's good, and hopefully we won't have any any fires or anything. We'll see. It's kind of back to fire season worries again, but uh, you know, so it's good. So, so one of the interesting things you were writing about today was a new report that finds the groundwater plans fail to protect vulnerable community environments. So, tell us a little about that. Yeah, well, I guess it's no surprise, because uh, certainly that's the reason why the Department of Water Resor- Resources uh, failed, put failures on that, uh, on on some of those plans and sent them back to be redone. But yeah, um, you know, it, it's tough, this groundwater uh, management and coming together and trying to build a, a, a plan, and, you know, the groundwater legislation that we affectionately call stigma uh, requires a robust engagement of stakeholders uh, but the you know it uh, in a lot of plans especially in the San Joaquin Valley a lot of that uh, engagement didn't happen for you know whatever reason and there are numerous reasons not all of them are in control of the GSA you know groundwater is uh, and groundwater management and stigma is is kind of technical stuff, and not everybody is that interested, uh, you know, to to learn about it. But it it's kind of a requirement because if this is your community and this is your water source, that this is important stuff. 
but anyways, you know, they found that these that these plans didn't really engage with the stakeholders. There's a big problem with uh, domestic wells that even these plans that they've been submitted will call uh, w- would cause a lot of domestic wells to go dry. And, you know, there's just a lot of things that they didn't get done. You know, they didn't fully identify disadvantaged communities. Um, they didn't really consider negative impacts to domestic wells. And a lot didn't have a well mitigation plan in place, which means that if your well goes dry, there is no plan for the Groundwater Sustainability Agency to do anything about it. So, you know, there there's... There's nothing really surprising, I think, in those results, given that um, the we, we've had six of those plans rejected. But this analysis is also indicating that there are deficiencies even in the plans that are approved in these areas. Um, and, you know, the Department of Water Resources was very clear when they were building the, recogni- the uh, regulations for SIGMA that they were going to be looking for substantial compliance with the law in these first plans, that they're not going to be perfect, but as long as they are substantially compliant, they are addressing the things that need to be addressed. You know, Because there's a lot of data, ga- data gaps. A lot of these basins didn't even have to monitor anything really beforehand, and now they have to set up monitoring networks. And then you need a couple years to collect data so you can uh, start to establish trends. So, you know, there was a recognition by the Department of Resources and others that, uh, that these first plans wouldn't be perfect, um, and they weren't going to, you know, they weren't going to be so strict as, you know, that none of these plans would pass because they're going to have to be adjusted as we move along. So we'll see what happens. It's not entirely a surprising result, I think, at least not to me, uh, but, you know, given that these other plans were failed. So. Yeah. Well, I know Mr. Davy and I were talking earlier. I know he probably has a question about uh, Tulare Lake, which you saw in the local news in California. Chris? I did. You know, I saw I saw that it was receding, right, from the articles that I've read, but uh, also read in there that it's likely to hang around for at least one to two years. I, I just found that astounding. I mean, I thought, I thought with the hot summer here, it would, like, dry up. Well, yeah, there's, you know, one of the features, I guess, of the geology of the valley is that there's a very big clay pan surface underneath uh, some of the area, uh, a deep layer of clay that kind of prevents water from, you know, trickling down into the aquifer. I'm sure at some point there's some water seeping down, but this clay pan is really um, leaving the water to be perched. And, and it's quite it's quite contaminated in a lot of places. You know, we've had Farms that have got flooded, that means they have equipment and, and you know, gas and, and all sorts of stuff that can be in that water. Um, you know, people's homes have been flooded, and, and so the uh, they actually had to declare a state of emergency in Kings County due to the contaminated floodwaters and, you know, the disease and mosquitoes that can yep, come yep. with it, you know. You know. Uh, but the good news is that uh, they 
you know, the lake is receding, it's doing much better, um, and uh, I, I don't think anybody who isn't flooded now is going to get flooded, at, you know, at this point. So that's the good news. Yeah, not anymore they won't, right? Because, you know, water is going to find the, lo- the lowest point. That's just a fact. Here's another thing on the, on the Maven's Notebook feed that I found interesting, and that's the connection in the, in the article about um, Australian wildfires and uh, our California drought. Um, and the setting up of La Nina, because basically what they were saying is all those wild, wildfires put smoke in the air and all that kind of stuff that settled over the um, eastern Pacific where the La Nina is setting up. And because of all the smoke, there was less solar radiation being absorbed in the south, which means more of that solar radiation being absorbed right in the trade underneath the trade winds because it blows it. And because because of that, that's why La Nina is coming around. I you know, I never thought about that. Never, ever. Wouldn't have even well, dreamed it. Yeah, and, you know, we're just now starting to learn about how things on a worldwide scale affect other areas. And that's just exactly. that's just one example, you know. I mean, there are other connections that they've found. Um, the monsoon season is, uh, however, the monsoon season is, is in India has an effect on how bad the heat will be in the San Joaquin Valley. I know. Uh, yeah. you know I mean, it, it's interesting. And it's, to me, it's part of my hypothesis, my great untested hypothesis, which is that everything is connected to everything else in this world. So, you know, and it's just, we're just now learning about this worldwide scale that things kind of operate on. And and this is kind of important. You know, I, I had a presentation, I did a write-up a few years ago where um, a uh, scientist uh, looked at trends of uh, species in the San Francisco Bay and some of these larger oscillations in the atmosphere that yep. we're kind of, we're, we're just learning. You know, there are things like, seasons, uh, things that change year in, year out, there are things that move on a, dec- uh, on a decadal scale, 10 years. So now that we've been monitoring, have, you know, have this, uh, we've expanded our ability to monitor and we have a couple decades now of data, we can start to see these larger trends. And he was able to show how when, you know, certain oscillations were happening that certain species in the San Francisco Bay uh, you know, it affected the population level. Well, why why would this be important? Well, because we set up a lot of regulations that, that, you know, that are based on how well species are doing. And if your indicator species is being affected by a global circulation pattern that happens every 10 years, you know, you're not going to be able to do much about that. Uh, so, you know, so it, it's, it's going to be interesting, and we're we're just starting to learn about how these global connections work. But but they're definitely out there. Wow, that's that's kind of a scary thing. But I I, I believe in your hypothesis. I think that's really true, though. Well, really yeah, Rob, wasn't it you told me once that when your gas gauge gets below a quarter of a tank, you know you're going to have crunchy peanut butter on toast for breakfast the next. <laughs> no, but that's a good one. I remember that one. <laughs> well, yeah, that's because the price of gas is so high. That's all he can afford the next morning, right? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> hey, I, I hear the bunnies are hiding up north. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Chris, give us a slowdown on that one. Oh yes, yes. Well, you know, there, there, the 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 water has impacted all sorts of species, and that includes, uh, you know, the bunnies and the. Um, I'm, I got to flip to this story. The nutria. bunnies and the nutria. Yeah. Well, we don't like the nutria, so we want the nutria to go away. Um, I'm sorry, I'm running up and down. Was that yesterday? No. Oh, there, no, here it is. Yes, yeah, save the bunnies, eliminate the swamp rat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we like the bunnies. They've been rescuing the bunnies. We have no, we, we don't want the nutria, but, you know, uh, they're they're really working, you know, it's, it's <laughs> they now got the swamp, bunny mouths. The swamp rats you're talking about, are the nutria? You're not talking the political swamp rats. Just want to clarify. That. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 no, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, I don't want to make any political statements. Yes, I'm talking no. about those big orange tooth rodents that. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's some family in Pennsylvania that took one in and they <laughs> used it as a pet. Oh. <laughs> they had to get a special special. Once they once they found them with their pet, so they finally decided they could keep it. But uh, yeah, a nutria is a pet. Yeah, well, how's, I don't it, think how, so. how's it? How's it? How's it responding to normal life now? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so Chris, let's just talk about. Yeah, you know, I know we kind of keep it light here with all the stuff we've been talking about. We try to avoid political stuff, but let's dig into it because obviously you you. Just pop up Maven's notebook on your screen. You'll see that <laughs> it's it's covered in stories about the Delta water tunnel and some setbacks that have happened. What kind of what's the backstory? Well, you know, we have this act, uh, this legislation called the California uh, Environmental Quality Act, which is kind of similar to the National Environmental Policy Act, which is basically requires. Any government agency that's contemplating a project or an action has to uh, do a, a um, uh, environmental impact report or an environmental impact statement. And the state um, uh, requirements are generally more stringent than the federal, especially here in California. And our, our California Environmental Quality Act, or we call it CEQA, um, has been coming under fire because it really is a way, um, it's really part of the reason why we are so constrained on housing because it makes it, uh, makes it very hard to build houses in certain places. And it's really being used in ways that the people who, you know, the legislators that wrote it didn't really intend it to be. I don't think, and you know, I don't think the goal there was to make sure that, you know, People could not build things, but that's kind of, it kind of does get in the way of a lot of projects. So Newsom decided uh, it, during the budget process that he wanted to have, make it easier, make some changes to the to CEQA to make it easier to build projects, to build infrastructure projects. And this includes, you know, roads and sewers and all sorts of things. But he also specifically called out um, the Delta Conveyance Project, which immediately got uh, people very concerned and upset because they don't, 
you know that that pro that project's very controversial, and and they did not like uh, seeing it kind of getting this path. Um, I mean, it's quite understandable. I kind of think, you know, personally, that the fact that he thought that he could put that forward in that way and have people like it was was a little astonishing because, uh, you know, it's very controversial project. Uh, but anyway, they it, it was a, a budget trailer bill, and that's another thing that people pointed out that to change this the sequel uh, really should be done through a public process and not through a budget trailer bill because the budget trailer bill doesn't really have to go in front of committees. I, the committee members have taken it up in the committees, but it doesn't have to. It's just a way that you know. It's a way to skirt the legislature to get things done. And so they finally, in order to pass the bill, they they took the Delta tunnels out or they explicit, they added, I believe they added language that explicitly disqualifies the Delta conveyance project. Uh, so finally, now the budget's going forward. But, but you know, and we'll see how, it, if it makes any meaningful change uh, for CEQA in order to, you know, help with the housing situation. But as for the Delta Conveyance Project, it's not going to get that kind of help. Now, you know, is the, is the Delta Tunnel on life support? I, I don't, I, I think that's all premature. Uh, you know, the, the one thing I think that uh, the state has learned that, that's, that's, true but somewhat unfortunate is that you know collaboration is hard <laughs> and it takes up a lot of time and so the you know i think that they are they have done the required public processes for this delta conveyance project but uh they haven't um earlier attempts at this project it included a lot more public meetings and i think that uh i suspect this is i'm just guessing i suspect that they came to understand that all those meetings kept the people who were opposed to the project riled up so this time around they took a different task they put together a delta stakeholder engagement committee and they developed the project in conjunction with this committee the committee didn't like the project but they actually were able you know it it was sort of the process well if we're going to build this project how can we make it easier on you so they did provide a lot of input for that although clearly they did not support the project um so they had that, and then they went away to do the environmental impact report, and they didn't make a, you know, they have not made a lot of uh, stir with this project. But I, I think that if you think that the project's gone away, well, I think you're wrong. Because right now, they're responding to comments, and then they will come back with the final environmental impact report. And I don't think that, that they will either choose to certify or not. And I don't think anything is going to change the fact that that's what's going to happen. They're not going to stop now, put it that way. The big fight will be when they decide uh, whether to certify this environmental impact report or not. Uh, well, 
we'll stay tuned to see what's going to happen. I don't, I have no idea what they're going to do, and uh, anything can happen from what I hear. Oh, yeah. Stay on the edge of your seat. Absolutely. All right, well, Chris, I want to tell our wonderful listeners to go to maidensnotebook.com and uh, become a subscriber. It's the best way to get the most updated in water news in California. Also, you can become a sponsor of the of the show of her of her uh, things. She has a new avatar, so go check that out. And uh, it's gonna be it's kind of cute. It's gonna have a lot of fun with that. And um, anyway, it's a uh, uh, she's she's a great writer. Like I said, all those titles I gave her at the beginning, she she even has more than that that I can't even list. It's so long. I just think take up take take up the whole show for me to say all the things that she does. But she's wonderful. She is most wonderful. And I urge everybody go 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 to Maven's Notebook, sign up to be a subscriber, and uh, I'm telling you, you're going to get news that you've never seen before ahead of everybody else. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. I know you'll be back next week as always, and I wish you a cool weekend and a cool Fourth of July and a safe one. Yes, Happy Fourth of July, everyone. Have a great Have week, Chris. Cool. All right, we're going to take a little break, and then Chris is going to come back with his uh, featured guest. Uh, from the Irrigation Association. We have uh, two featured guests, and uh, Chris will start it off with uh, what he's bringing. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back. KCAA Loma Linda. Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623 623- Five nine four eight six eight nine. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system to meet any requirements or regulations. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. 
And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. This is KCAA. Second half of the Water Zone Radio Show program. I'm your host, Chris Davy, along with the ever present and all knowing Rob Starr. So, Rob, you know as well as I do that every year, every single year for the last couple of dozen years, the IA has sponsored an event during the month of July called Smart Irrigation Month. So, we're lucky enough to have with us tonight Nathan Bowen, who is the Advocacy and Public Affairs Vice President for the IA. He's going to tell us all about it. Take it away, Nate. Hello, everybody. This is Chris Davey, your host of The Water Zone, along with uh, Rob Starr. We've got a special guest on today's show. It's Nathan Bowen, who's the Advocacy and Public Affairs Vice President for the Irrigation Association. We're going to talk a little bit about July Smart Irrigation Month. Welcome to The Water Zone, Nathan. Hey, it's really good to be here, Chris and Rob. Appreciate you taking the time to, to have me on today. Great time for our industry, and um, we're glad you're on to tell everybody what is July Water Smart. Yeah, well, thanks for that opportunity. And indeed, it is a really exciting time for our industry. And here at the Irrigation Association, we're very excited uh, to be kicking off at the beginning of July our annual Smart Irrigation Month, where um, the Irrigation Association and those across the, the industry is able to join together and really share how we as an industry are providing solutions to some of the most critical challenges that face society. Everything from supporting global food security and, and protecting our, our water resources to, to really importantly providing um, the water that's used to, to the critical, that's critical for our thriving, healthy communities around the country. Uh, so we're looking forward uh, at the beginning of July to engage across the industry to highlight the important role that irrigation plays. Um, this year, we are focused on uh, a theme of communicating what's the value of smart irrigation. And this really is our opportunity to tell the story of, of the irrigation industry's um, contribution to how smart irrigation products and technologies and, and practices have a positive and uh, beneficial impact on, on our lives and uh, on our communities. Uh, we're excited this year that um, we are able to join with professionals uh, from across the industry to, to amplify these messages. Uh, and we're asking those in the industry to engage with us, to join with us, to promote this, um, and to promote the value of, of uh, irrigation towards the benefits that it, it provides for um, our communities, uh, society, our economy, and I think really importantly, the environment as well. Uh, one of the things that we're excited about in particular is uh, July 11th is uh, our annual Technology Tuesday, uh, which is our call to action for the industry to, to join with us uh, to promote Smart Irrigation Month. Uh, we here at the Irrigation Association are, are going to be wearing blue that day to, um, to demonstrate our, our um, commitment to the, the industry 
And we encourage those around the, the country to do the same, um, to join with us, uh, take pictures of, of your team wearing blue and, and join with us on social media. Uh, we've got a, a hashtag uh, smart irrigation month all ready to go and it's our opportunity to to join together across the country and as an industry to to highlight the 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 work that our industry does um, i might also point out that one of the things that we here at the irrigation association have done is provide and develop some resources for irrigation professionals to get involved in this and to share their stories uh, you can visit smartirrigationmonth.org and um, use and, and take advantage of, of messaging guides that the Irrigation Association has, has uh, put together. Uh, we have pre-made social media templates. We have infographics about the value of smart irrigation and the, the practices that our industry is committed to. And we have some tools for folks to uh, use to promote Smart Irrigation Month through their their local media as well. Question, Nathan, because um, you know this is an annual event, right? And and it's happened for many many years. Um, maybe some of our listeners don't know how long. Kind of what do you know a little bit about the? Can you tell us rather a little bit about the history of uh, Smart Irrigation Month? How long has it been going? Sure. Well, I I I've been here at the Irrigation Association less than a year, and I know it's been going on for for nearly over a decade. I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head how many years specifically, but this is a long-standing uh, uh, month every year where our industry joins together to highlight the the value that smart irrigation plays in our our society. And there's opportunities for all ia members manufacturers um distrib distribution contractors uh municipalities public agencies whatever to get involved as well as you were just mentioning right so you know what is there is it kind of promotional stuff or um, what's a little more detail about what's available for your membership and just people in the industry to get involved yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll say this is open for, for anyone across the industry who would like to join with us, um, whether uh, you're with a, a manufacturer, dist distributor, uh, designer, contractor, anyone across the industry is, is welcome to join at smartirrigationmonth.org. We have put together uh, a host of resources for people to be able to use and leverage uh, to communicate the value of our industry. So we have tools like messaging guides that provide um, ideas for how to communicate the value of, of what we do as an industry. So uh, talking about the, the value that we bring to providing vital green spaces across, across the, uh, the country the environmental sustainability benefits that smart irrigation provides everything from the um, the green spaces that provide biodiversity and habitat for pollinators how our industry helps contribute and create opportunities for carbon sequestration and and i think really importantly in, in a lot of areas of the country how these irrigated green spaces can contribute to provide cooling for very hot urban areas, uh, which is just a critically important thing. Um, one of the things that we're focusing this year as well is how 
smart irrigation can help contribute to more livable communities, how we can help provide places for people to play, for people to make memories, uh, to stay active and to provide the, the health benefits that come with uh, an, an active lifestyle. Uh, so that smartirrigationmonth.org, folks across the industry can find uh, resources to help communicate these benefits, this value of what we do. We have uh, pre-made social media templates, so information or infographics that people can use on their um, on their Twitter or Facebook or Instagram to help communicate this value of, of irrigation. And we also have resources for folks to engage with uh, local media. So if you want to write a, a letter to the editor or uh, record a, a public service announcement. We have tools and, and sample scripts for that that uh, folks can use. The goal of this is to, to make this as easy, as seamless, and as plug and play for folks so that they can, they can use these tools so that we across the industry can join together uh, to, to amplify all of our voice together to, to articulate the value of irrigated green spaces around the country. Where can all our listeners get all that information from? Visit uh, the Irrigation Association's website for Smart Irrigation Month, which is smartirrigationmonth.org. That's all one word, smartirrigationmonth.org. And can they access some of your uh, publications as well? Absolutely. One of the things that we're really proud of here at the Irrigation Association or the, the publications that our, our team produces. Um, I highly recommend Irrigation and Lighting uh, magazine to folks. And, and through that, that website, you can access the latest coverage across the industry of uh, the, the latest happenings in, in the green industry and the irrigation industry and beyond. Uh, so certainly take advantage of the, the resources there to learn more about how uh, irrigation professionals can uh, improve their business, how they can grow their business, how they can learn more about cutting edge technology and new things coming online. And critically important is the um, learn more about how um, our industry is being impacted by um, by others. You know, we face a lot of challenges uh, in in our industry from uh, restrictions around the country on on irrigation and requirements on uh, products and things of that nature. And um, here at the Irrigation Association, we're tracking those issues. We provide some coverage of that in our magazines as well for folks to to stay up to date on that. So certainly take out take a a, a look at the resources there. Excellent. And we're going to be broadcasting this as well as other public service announcements for the Irrigation Association all through the month. And we're very proud to do that. Well, we really appreciate it. And we appreciate being able to partner with you all and, and highlight the important uh, contributions that our industry makes to society. Nathan, a, a great pleasure to have you on, sir. I mean, a, absolutely. This is a learning and a opportunity event, right? Broaden people's knowledge of the green industry. Uh, it's also an opportunity to promote uh, their own business and get involved in the industry. Nathan Bowen, thanks for being on the Water Zone. Appreciate it so much, and uh, you're always welcome back, sir. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, we'll look forward to talking with you both again soon.
really the lifeblood of the American Southwest. It starts in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado and goes down 1,450 miles to the Gulf of California. Along the way, it created the Grand Canyon. I've spent tons of time on the Colorado River, and my job is to cover really the American West. You know, there's some, some of the most spectacular uh, scenery in America, Red Rock Canyons, there's Native American reservations. There's so much history. Right now in the American West, there's an epic drought and it's causing the Colorado River to dry up. The Colorado River is in crisis. Due to largely climate change, um, it's in the worst drought uh, in at least 1,200 years. 1,200? Like 1,200 years? 1,200 years, and it's so dry, you can see like little dust devils and a boat covered in like dried up caked mud and uh, like a coyote out in the distance. You know, it's just like out of a, <laughs> out of a Clint Eastwood movie or something. There are seven states and tens of millions of people that rely on the Colorado River for drinking water, agriculture, and basically their entire existence. Those states all have to share the river's water, and the drought is making that a lot more difficult. The Colorado River is on the verge of collapse, and with that, there's a very large economy kind of at risk. I mean, that's how bad the situation is, and that's what everybody's trying to figure out right now. Have the states generally gotten along? Has it been easy for them to share water? No, no. In fact, um, you know, what's that saying? You know, that in the West, that whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. Yeah. There are seven states in the Southwest that rely on the Colorado River. The seven states are Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, and California. All these states depend on the Colorado. There's hydroelectric power, there's recreation, there's, um, you know, water for growth. The whole Yuma Valley Farm Belt is the nation's headquarters for winter vegetable production, that and neighboring Imperial Valley, California. And it's not just electricity and agriculture. It also supplies the drinking water for tens of millions of people who live in the region. So over the last, say, 50 years, we've had this explosion in population in the American Southwest. You see Phoenix, Vegas, to the fastest growing metropolises in America, Vegas has gained like almost a million people in the last like 20 years alone, Las Vegas metro area. Of course, uh, Southern California wouldn't be what it is without the Colorado River. To get this water, cities along the river pull it from big reservoirs that are fed by the Colorado. The two biggest are Lake Mead in Nevada and Lake Powell in Utah and Arizona. But right now, these reservoirs have less water than ever. Lake Mead was pretty much full in the year 2000. And so it's been crashing more than almost 200 feet in the last 20 years. And there's been a similar collapse at Lake Powell. Lake Powell is at about 27% of its normal capacity now. So you go there now and um, there's giant bathtub rings all around these lakes. One of the main reasons this is happening is because climate change is making the region drier and hotter than ever before. The last five years has been some of the hottest on record in the American West, and that's impacting the snowpack. And it's drying up the ground. It's just making it harder for the river to carry more water. So the snowpack has been melting faster. And so that water isn't really trickling down into the Colorado River. It's just getting sucked up by the ground. Why is that happening? Why is the snow not making its way into the river? Because the water is evaporating. It's getting sucked into the ground because it's warmer. The springs are warmer. Um, I mean, there's just much snow. It's just melting earlier. And, and so the ground is so thirsty because it's been in such a long drought that it's just, it's not getting to the river. So because there's not rain, the ground is now so dry and parched 
that when the snow starts melting off the mountains, the ground just like sucks it all right up. Exactly, exactly. And I remember, you know, way back in the 70s, I mean, you, you, you'd go hiking and uh, you'd usually get wet. You'd bring a poncho and <laughs> now you can't even have a, a campfire because it's so dry, you know, so that's how much changed. Jim says that in the last few years, the drought has gotten so bad that the seven states around the Colorado River have started rationing their water. In the last 20 years, they've come up with voluntary agreements to try to ration usage. So they agreed to voluntarily leave water in the lake, like me, to kind of keep it up. And that actually uh, did a pretty good job that propped the lake up by 70 feet over the last 10 years, which is a lot. And some cities in the Southwest have gotten pretty good at saving water. Las Vegas is one of actually the best places in the world for water conservation, which is kind of uh, counterintuitive because you look at the Bellagio and the fountains and all the golf courses and <laughs> yeah. Sin City and all that you think, you know, wretched excess. Uh-huh. All those all those Vegas pool parties. I mean <laughs> <laughs> But that's reclaimed water. That's recycled water. That's okay. Actually when they get water there in Las Vegas, they reuse so much that they just they reuse almost all of it. It's it's incredible. And this is a kind of a, a startling statistic. Their population has grown by seven hundred and fifty thousand in the last twenty years, the Las Vegas basin. But their water use total is down 26% over the same time. And in the last few years, Los Angeles has also taken steps to curb water usage. Earlier this year, they basically took the unprecedented step of like banning uh, lawn watering to all but one day a week in a broad area. There's like this war on the lawn in Los Angeles, which has been kind of kind of famous for green lawns. Even, you know, Kim Kardashian is getting notices now. I, I did a story on the lawn watering, and even Kim Kardashian is having trouble keeping her vast estate green. But these efforts, and many others across the seven states that share the water, are just not enough to keep the levels where they need to be. Lake Mead is just falling faster than anyone expected and faster than anyone had planned. Which means more restrictions are coming. So there are these seven states that rely on the water in the Colorado River. How is that water shared among these states? Yeah, this all goes back to um, the Colorado River Compact. It was, uh, it was agreed to in the 1920s, of all things, you know, 100 years ago, basically. And here, here's the uh, kind of um, the sad thing, uh, Ryan. I mean, when they decided to divvy up the Colorado back then, it was running much higher. Uh, I'm going to use the term acre feet. I mean, acre foot is the metric they use to talk about how, how much water. And that's like... Roughly the amount of water that a family of four uses in one year. Uh-huh. And that's like a, a foot acre means like an acre size of water that's one foot deep. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I think I can visualize that. Yep. And so anyway, so back then they said, okay, there's going to be 15 million acre feet that we're going to divvy up with the states. And that doesn't include the water that goes to the environment and down to the ocean and all that. But I mean, but the problem is that now it's like, in a, I mean, that, that, that's not a really good year, but now it's like way less than that. Today, not only is there less water available, there's also way more people relying on it. And as the water diminishes, it's become harder for the states to cooperate, in part because different states have different rights to the water. Some get more and some get less. This is because of how the rules were written back in the 1920s. California has the most rights and Arizona has the least. And, you know, that worked very well for many years. But when we had a a crashing of the amount of water going into the river then that caused a domino effect. The group that oversees the agreements between the states is called the Bureau of Reclamation. It's an arm of the federal government. They're the grand water master for the Western U.S. And they, most of these Western reservoirs, the feds really control. 
this is just kind of longstanding water history, but um, they're the umbrella on this. Last week, the commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation, Camille Kalimlam-Tutan, hosted a press conference over Zoom. The system is approaching a tipping point, and without action, we cannot protect the system and the millions of Americans who rely on this critical resource. She said the Colorado's two reservoirs were losing water faster than anyone expected. And everyone knew it was going to be grim. Commissioner Tuton referenced the efforts to get the seven states to do more, and she was pretty frank that they had failed so far to come up with anything substantive is way short of what they needed, way short. And so she basically told them, we want to work with the states cooperatively, but we are taking action now. The Bureau is mandating that the seven states now have to cut their water usage by nearly one million acre-feet, which is roughly the amount of drinking water that four million people use in a year. But those cuts aren't equal across the board. They're based on those agreements from a century ago. So, for example, that means Arizona has to cut the most, and California doesn't have to cut any. And no one is happy about the new cuts. There was a lot of finger-pointing after this press conference. Southern Nevada Water Authority, they put out a big statement that um, others need to do more. Arizona, they also did finger-pointing. And I asked them, so uh, name names, who's not doing their part? And they said, well, California and uh, the Imperial Irrigation District. And that's one of the biggest users in the Colorado. They they use a ton. Um, I talked to the Imperial Irrigation District. They said, no, we've done a lot. Arizona water officials expressed frustration. Many questioned why California is not getting a cut. Southern Nevada Water Authority sending a letter to the federal government saying the other states aren't taking the problem seriously. California is kind of in a pickle now because the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, I, I guess in a good year, if the, if the Sierra Nevada was doing good, they could say, okay, we're going to leave what we normally use from the Colorado. We're going to be a good guy. We're going to leave it all there. So we'll cut 25%. And, but we'll just take more from the Sierra Nevadas. But California can't do that this year because the Sierra Nevada mountains are also experiencing a drought. How would you characterize this fight that's broken out between the state's over these cutbacks? I was kind of surprised. I thought they were kind of getting along, honestly. So I was actually very surprised at the tone of the language. So I don't know. I think now that the rubber's hitting the road, there's some real pain that um, there's more emotion. Uh, There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot lot of money at stake. We're at the point now where there's only painful cuts ahead. We've done kind of the easy stuff. The low-hanging fruit's been done. You know, we've gone to drip irrigation. We're trying to, you know, not uh, sprinkle during the the heat of the day. Uh, We're trying to you know, not plant grass and that kind of thing. But I mean, we're, we're at kind of painful cuts right now. And I think that's kind of the problem. The most painful cuts need to happen in Arizona. Because of those old agreements, the state has to cut 21% of its water usage. And in Arizona, the people that use the most water are farmers. The Arizona farmers are being hit the hardest. There's one county, Pinal County, which is south of uh, Phoenix. You know, it's between Phoenix and Tucson. They've had major cuts already. So this year, we <clears throat> we took about a 40 to 60% cut. I'm very concerned. You know, it's just to see this place dry up and know that we can farm. We just don't have the water, and it's very frustrating. We're going to probably have to go up about a 6 or 7% increase in price. The crisis for Arizona agriculture could have national consequences. Farmers may have to leave plots empty, sell cows, or raise their prices up to 30 to 40% of the water has been cut off already because of cuts on the Colorado. And so this is meaning fewer crops, fewer employees, 
prices for things like hay and forage. That's one big crop. They, you know, alfalfa, they sell this to the dairy farmers. Those prices are going up. And so now the dairy farmers having to pay more. So that's going to have an impact on dairy prices, you know, cheese and milk and whatnot. And that's kind of playing out throughout the area. And it's not just dairy. Prices could also go up for vegetables, beef and pork. Why not just have every state, all seven states, just cut, say, 25% of their water usage across the board? Well, that would be too easy, wouldn't it? (laughs) Why not go the easy route? Seriously, like, why not? Like, why are states fighting with each other about who has to cut how much? Like, why shouldn't everybody just cut the same amount? Well, it may, it may, you know what? I mean, that's a good point. It may come to that. I mean, so right now everybody's kind of stuck and like, well, here's how much I get. Here's how much you get. And, you know, you know, I get this, you get that. Here's what I've already done. Here's what you've done. I mean, it's just in the Colorado River is such a convoluted mess in terms of the history of the legal. I mean, there's been decades long lawsuits over this thing. It sounds like the states are like a group of siblings fighting over the last piece of cake. Yeah, 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 basically. Yeah, right. But that cake is like essential to your life. So put this moment into context. Like how, how significant is this moment that we're in right now? I would say this is, we're at a crossroads in the American Southwest. If we don't solve this problem of a diminishing Colorado River, the very future of one of the most vibrant regions in America is really at stake. I don't think people realize how precious water is. We're talking about a constraint on growth. There will be towns where there will be a housing development that won't be approved because there's not enough water. And that's going to translate to fewer people moving in, fewer jobs. It's going to be a constraint on growth in a place that's really had no constraints before. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a day of reckoning. You know, I know uh, Chris and I talk about uh, the uh, Colorado River almost every day. And, uh, you know, you hear it from Chris Austin and everything else, but we thought we'd bring on some uh, good friends, uh, Ryan Knudsen and Jim Carlton from the Wall Street Journal, uh, who have their perspective. They've been reporting on this for the last couple of years. So hopefully that gave some more insight to our listeners about what's, uh, what was the cause of things happening from 1920s and up. Uh, you know, maybe we got to take a look at the laws again, but uh, they're trying to work that out. So, Chris, what did you think? I guess we lost Chris there for a second, uh, but I hope everything's going well. Right here, Rob. Oh, okay. Sorry. Sorry. No, no problem. Hey, good, good, uh, good input from our colleague Ryan and Jim, uh, Wall Street Journal. You know, those guys <laughs> talked a great story of what we've talked about on the show many times before. I like their comments about Vegas, right? I mean, they—they're the first ones I've—I've I've heard for in a while giving Vegas some credit for their. You know, they're kind of poster child uh, position in water reuse. Um, yep. It was good to hear that. And and we did a lot with uh, their past uh, uh, GM of uh, Southern Nevada Water District, Pat Mulroney. And uh, she's yeah. a great lady. Uh, she's really a dynamo in the uh, in the water world. I think she's consulting now. Uh, but maybe we should get her back on and yeah. get her perspective on that. Then we're also going to, I'm going to give a call to Seth Siegel, our friend, uh, who's the uh, author of wa- about water, and he has a new uh, uh, story about uh, pumping water out of the earth and how it's going to affect the tilt of our spin. So that could be uh, a kind of a serious, kind of serious thing. Any other things you want to wrap up for the week, my friend? No, I was going to say just a couple of things that uh, about what we were talking about, Ryan and, and Jim, uh, about their 
about their piece here that we just played. You know, the celebrity issue in L.A. because they talked about, you know, L.A. and celebrities and, you know, the, that connection to water water use. Um, right. And how uneven rules apply to them, right? Because they, you know, it seems like they get a bad rap because it seems like they don't care or they can afford to pay, so it doesn't matter to them. And they're just, right. you know, you know, disrespectful to it. Um, I think that's a show segment right there, Rob. We should, uh, yeah, we should look into that. I think it's fun to do. Well, Kim, they said Kim Kardashian was using a lot of water yeah. on her snow bachelor's estate and some other things. And, you know, I ran into that when I was working, you know, with the people from Beverly Hills. I told you I went to a yep. house that had seven swimming pools. Oh, yeah. and, and, uh, and the owner said, I can afford the water, I'll pay. <laughs> that was, yep. that was yep. his compliment. But, yep, um, I know. Well, you know, before before we give it up here for the for this show, and I know we had Nathan on from the IA talking about July's uh, Smart Irrigation Month, but hey, listen, guys, um, it is the theme this year is what's the value of Smart Irrigation. So just, I just wanted to tell a rock, uh, listen, Rob to go to smartirrigationmonth.org, all one string, smartirrigationmonth.org. There's a bunch of more information and resources how you can be part of uh, of that event this July. Absolutely. And I understand uh, our company, along with uh, <clears throat> Municipal Water District of Orange County and the Wyland Foundation, uh, we did a project for a park in Westminster, California, and we're going to submit that into a project both with all, both with uh, irrigation and with our lighting group. So that should That's be right. pretty interesting. And we'll, we'll give you an update to that. And I think we should start another contest for a, uh, a yard enhancement. So we'll talk about that with the Water District. So everybody, you all yeah, have a great... yeah. All you, all you have a great week. Uh, have a safe and wonderful 4th of July. Don't get burnt by firecrackers. And uh, anyway, stay safe. And, and remember the thing that's most important to Chris and I is please help yep. keep yep. our yep. planet uh, blue. Planet blue. Good night, everybody. Right. Good night, everybody. Have a good holiday. CAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM.